Good morning. I just wanted to sit down today and do something different. No, I'm going to have, uh, bring somebody out in just a moment. But it's good to see you. I'm glad you came to church today. You know, as Eric and I were coming in, Eric said to me, he goes, it's still hard for me to believe that people come to church at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And I said, honestly, the crowd that comes at 8 o'clock in the morning would probably come to 7 o'clock service in the morning. You're, you always get up early. Am I right? You attack the day with vigor. That's right. That's why you're successful. That's what my dad would say. Um, well, we're glad you're here, and we have somebody very, very special. We're going to talk about a very special person in history uh, who impacted the culture not only of Great Britain, but of the United States, Europe, um, and, uh, uh, but also we have somebody very special to talk about that. He is the New York Times bestselling author. He is heard every day on our radio station and stations across the country. He also has a television program every week on TBN uh, where he interviews guests. And uh, he's just made a great impact in our culture as it is. So would you please join me in welcoming Eric Metaxas. How are you? You kind of jumped out here. You kind of danced Holy out here. Holy cow. What are you people doing in church at this hour? Go back to bed. <laughs> Wow, thank you so much. I love it here. I, I just, thank you. And Eric, you're wearing a slightly different pocket square than you did last night. You are the king of pocket squares. How many pocket squares do you own? Can I be honest? That's not a compliment. What the <laughs> heck? Um, I, I don't own a lot of pocket squares. I just feel that uh, if you're wearing a jacket and you don't have a po pocket square, it usually looks a little naked, a little... So, so I, don't, you, I don't know what to tell you. You are you know? so East Coast. Why is your hair that way, Skip? You tell me. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? What's going on? Uh, Eric Metaxas, um, you were raised in New York. You live there now, New York City. This is going to be an easy interview. I'm just going to go true. Okay. okay. True. No, I was born in New York City. My parents are European immigrants. My dad came from Greece in the mid-50s. My mom came from Germany in the mid-50s. They met in an English class in New York City, learning to speak the English language. Wow. And uh, by God's grace, they're still with us, and they still have their accents, and I love and them. And what did that and sound like around the house? Like, your, What does your mom sound like? Well, I can't really do her German. Her German accent is not strong. I mean, it, it is, it's not a typical German accent, but she definitely has a German accent. My father's my mom, Greek accent is strong. My mom spoke German when I was a kid. That's, she spoke German? Yeah, when she wanted to say something that she didn't want us to know what it was, she'd say it in German. Really? Yeah. That's, that sounds hateful. Kind of. Uh, yeah, the Germans are very, uh, very mean. Uh, no, it's kind of funny because they have that reputation, but my mother, this is not a joke, in my family, my mother and obviously my, my family, my grandmother grew up with my grandmother and my aunt, they're from the part of Germany became East Germany, but it was uh, they call it Thuringia right next to Saxony where Luther's from and What I find interesting is that those Germans have an unbelievable sense of humor and they're very affectionate My mother is just very affectionate. You think the Greeks would be but the Greeks are a little bit standoffish in my family so you can you know all of these uh, interesting cliches and stereotypes sometimes they work sometimes they don't but my mother is the one that, the, that, you know, needed the hugs and needed the whatever. And I think, you don't think that from German people, right? Well, 
you got to think again. If you're, if you're in, the, in the neighborhood of where Luther's from, it's a different kind of German. And your father uh, as a Greek, so he, like when he would want coffee, how would he say he, he, would, he wants coffee? How, how, I think how? he's trying to goad me into imitating a Greek. Do you, can you feel that? Yeah. I don't know. I did a Christmas special for, T, for TBN, which I know was not widely seen. Confirmation. And, uh, <laughs> but it was, um, it's kind of like a Bob Hope, Dean Martin, regular Christmas special. And actually, I do unapologetically ask you to go to Eric Metaxas' show on YouTube because it, it, it's nuts. But it's on good. there, I did this Greek character uh, based on characters that I, that I grew up with. My father, he, like, there's a little bit of him in it, but not really. <laughs> so I'm not going to answer that question. You have to know. Oh, oh they're disappointed. Yeah. Ask, go ahead, ask me if I care. Uh, the, I'm from New York, I don't care. No, but um, actually the character in the, if you go to the YouTube channel, Eric Metaxas Show, there's a Greek character that I do, and he's very angry, he's wearing this mustache, he's an older guy, and he wants a cigarette. And of course, because, this is not a joke, I was gonna do a thing with a cigarette, but on TBN, they were like, no, 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 you can't do that. And I was like, look, it's a joke, like that's the joke, right? But they're gonna, so, I, I ask for a cigarette angrily, they don't give me a cigarette, and then I say, hey, what about the coffee? I can't have coffee. You know, like, are you gonna permit that, you legalistic uh, sons of guns? And, uh, and so, I, so I say, can't have coffee. And so they give me coffee, and I say, you're sure, I can't have coffee, eh? You're sure. And, and then I take the coffee, and I take a sip, and I say, this coffee is weak, it's for children. Uh, I say, it's like the English tea, because, the, you know, only the Greeks can do everything right. And then, but my favorite line, this is cracks me up when I watch the video, is this character says, the coffee, the coffee should be strong, like a heart attack, like a bull. So it's kind of, yes. if you just want to understand how insane, but the problem is this is based on people I grew up with. If you want to know why I'm messed up, like that was my, that's my world, man. Well, uh, you have a very interesting background in that you uh, have, you've written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and then... 30 children's books you have produced. Yeah. Um, you're like, and Veggie Tales even, right? I, I worked for Veggie Tales. I had the privilege of being the voice of the narrator on the Esther video. If you watch the Esther video for Veggie Tales, they wanted a, a narrator uh, who could do kind of like a New York type, you know, mafia voice, I guess that's what they were looking for. So in the voice of the narrator, I wrote half of Lila Kindly Viking. I wrote the Hamlet Omelette parody. I have an eclectic yeah career that's kind of what i want to get at so you you're all over the map it's like you have literary add you yeah. write children's books you write yeah. serious yeah. biographies uh, why why so many different genres you know we have to go with how the lord made us and that's how the lord made me uh you know you can't some people can only do one thing and they do it brilliantly i do all these different kinds of things and i guess it was gk chesterton who said if there's anything worth doing it's worth doing poorly Right? You've heard that, that if anything worth doing, it's worth doing well. But he said, if there's anything worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. In other words, if the thing itself is so great, it, just go and do it. Have fun and do it. And I feel that way with a lot of my writing. Uh, I, I think the problem with me is that most people would know me first for, you know, a 600-page biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or the German theologian, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Excellent and then, book. And, I, and almost intentionally, to give people whiplash, I wrote these two uh, humor books on Donald Trump, you know? And I think people are like, what? What is wrong with you? How can you do that and, and that? And I, I just feel like 
the Lord really made me uh, to want to do all these different kinds of things. And I, by his grace, I enjoy it when I get to do different things, including a Bob Hope style Christmas special for TBN. I mean, it's it's just how God made me, and I, I assume he knows what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing, but I assume he knows what he's um, doing. Eric, I'm going to just show a little clip and have you comment on it, because I just sort of think it sums up, at least in part, uh, a worldview you have, an approach you have. You portray the Christian life as intelligent, and um, you, you write about it very intelligently. But let's play this clip and then uh, comment on yourself. This ridiculous idea, which is so popular in our culture that, you know, if you want to believe, you've got to kind of check your brain uh, at the door. That's absurd. I mean, it's totally wrong. Some of the greatest minds I've ever met, people that are just extraordinary, brilliant, thoughtful, uh, emotionally intelligent, uh, emotionally mature people are people of faith in Jesus. And I think the tragedy of our culture and the culture that I grew up in is that you don't really see evidence of that. Okay, so besides you not enjoying the lights that were in your eyes in that video, what you said was very profound, so, so comment on that. Well, um, it's my story, you know, I, I grew up in a working class home and by the grace of God was able to go to this elite university, Yale University, you know, the American dream, and you go there and uh, pretty quickly, I realized, you know, all the way these elites think, they totally think that if you're a serious Christian, you're nuts. If you're any kind of a conservative, you're nuts. And that, I thought, this is weird. But I was so young, I didn't really have any pushback against it. I kind of drifted with it and kind of adopted that worldview. And then I graduated, and I was, of course, lost because I was an English major, which is uh, exactly what happens <laughs> if you major in English. And, and I... Uh, but... The Lord used it because in my lostness, which really was dramatic in some ways, I was really just profoundly lost. The, the Lord reached out to me through a friend and in my misery somehow spoke to me in a dream. Of what I was dramatically born again. But as soon as I was born again, probably the reason I resisted all of that is because this, this worldview that, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to go there. That's, you know, that's for the for people who need religion as a crutch or something. So when I, when I got saved, I started reading books and meeting people and, think, and I thought, holy cow, some of the most wonderful, brilliant people I've ever met are people of profound Christian faith. And it's like, that's been hidden in the culture. I mean, if you're watching TV or whatever, you would get the impression that that's true. And I realized it's not only not true, it's a, it's a foul lie because some of the best people I've met on any level have been people of profound Christian faith. And some of the most impressive people like Wilberforce um, did the great things they did because of their Christian faith. And they were geniuses. Wilberforce was a genius. So I, I feel part of God's calling on my life is to help disabuse people of this absurd notion that being a Christian somehow means uh, being uh, unintellectual or something. In fact, I say it's just the opposite. It, in order not to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door. You really do. You have to be, uh, you have to buy into a narrative that says, I, I, I don't care about the evidence. I just don't want to believe that. Because more and more, the evidence points toward the God of the Bible. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. And it should make them uncomfortable because it's true. Hmm. Um, you, you, um, you write uh, biographies. 
among other things. But uh, we've had you here when you uh, spoke on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Last time it was Martin Luther. Both excellent books. Um, and, and, and we want to talk about this one, uh, Amazing Grace. But, and by the way, a very compelling book. Hard to put this down. It's a, he, you draw us into his life in a very unique way. So you're a great writer. Um, you've also done one called Seven Men and, uh, and The Secret of Their Greatness, Seven Women. So you, you, you tell stories about people's lives. Why is it that you, you write biographies? Well, first of all, I never wanted to write biographies. I have to be clear that if you said to me 15 years ago, you know, Eric, you're a writer, you want to be a writer, do you think you'll ever write a biography? I would have said absolutely no. I have no desire to write a biography, and I won't. But, of course, the Lord has other plans, and he, when the movie uh, came out, Amazing Grace, it was 2007. And before the movie came out, that was the celebration of the bicentennial of the abolition of the slave trade. It happened in 1807. It's the culmination of the book. It's, I mean, it's not the end of the book, but it's sort of the culmination of his life because Wilberforce is most known. If you don't know who he is, he's most known for one thing. Because of his faith in Jesus, he was a politician in parliament, and he felt compelled as a believer to lead the battle against slavery and the slave trade. And it was a huge political battle, but he knew God called him to it. And in 1807, they had this big victory, and they abolished the slave trade in the British Empire, which is a huge moment in history, uh, stunning. So in 2007, some people said, oh, we need to make a movie commemorating this. And while they were making the movie, somebody contacted me and said, hey, would you like to write a biography of Wilberforce? Because this movie's coming out, it's a bicentennial or whatever. And I thought, you know, I've never thought about writing a biography, so let me pray about it. And, you know, I, I need money, so yeah, I, I, if you're offering me a, a job to, to write a book, let me, let me think about it. I don't know. I've never written one. And I prayed about it, and the Lord actually spoke clearly. It's one of those rare times in my life that I can say that he did. Uh, and I just said, okay, I'll do it. So I wrote the book, and I had fun writing the book. In some ways, this may be my favorite book because it's, it's, there's, there's fun all through it. It's like a happy story because he succeeds, you know? And, um, but I had no clue why I'm doing it other than it's an important story. And going along with what I said a minute ago, I, I want the world to know. You want to know why slavery was abolished? Because of this guy's Christian faith, okay? Because yeah. everybody says, racism's wrong, slavery's wrong. Yeah, Why? Well, it comes from the scripture, why? And this man understood that, and he used his power to, you know. So I wrote the book, and then people thought, oh, Erica, now you write biographies. So we assume you're writing biographies. Who are you going to write about next? And I said, well, I don't know if I ever want to write another biography. But eventually, I said, okay, and I wrote the book on Bonhoeffer. And so in the course of this, to, to answer the question, I, I realized that part of what God is doing is he's using these stories. These are inspiring stories to bless this generation. We, in this generation, we need heroes. We, we've, we've kind of, in the last 50 or so years, we've denigrated the idea of heroes. Um, I don't want to get into that, but the point is that, especially if you're a young person, you know, what does God say about how to live your life? How to, and so I thought Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer, and then when I wrote Seven Men and Seven Women, if you're not a big reader, Seven Men and Seven Women, I kind of wrote for you because I thought these stories are so amazing that in a chapter, you can get the story of a Wilberforce or a Bonhoeffer. These are amazing stories. You don't need to read a, a big book. But I said, when people encounter these lives, 
you get changed. You cannot help but be changed, including me. When I wrote about these people, it just does something. And I said, if there's anything lacking in, in contemporary culture, it's the stories of great heroes, especially Christian heroes. Then you read it, and you just go, I, I want to be like that. I need that. So it's kind of like why you go to church. Like, we need it. Uh, we just need it. And it's an inspiration that I just realized is not easily found. So, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, I'm going to be writing many uh, long books in the future, but I have a new book coming out called Seven More Men, and I got another one, Seven More Women, because there are so many people whose stories are just frankly amazing and probably unknown to most of us. So when you read it, you just, you know, you're educated, but also you understand God's hand in history, and then it, it usually inspires you to want to live your life along those lines. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you, you make a point just now and in your book that... Uh, you have to explain to this generation who William Wilberforce is. Does yeah. that surprise you that somebody who did that has right. to be reintroduced to this generation? Well, that, it's kind of funny. When I write, I'm not a scholar, okay? And scholars will be very happy to tell you that. Um, <laughs> but I don't care. I don't need to be a scholar. God didn't create me to be a scholar. People have done the scholarship. But how do you tell the story in a way that's not boring? That's not, you know, a lot of people can write big biographies that they're, they're, they're great scholarship, but they're not, you're not going to read it. And I thought, people need to know these stories, so they need to be told in a way that you want to read, that when you pick it up, you, you're, you're compelled to, to keep reading. And so I get into these subjects without knowing that much. I just knew the basics about Wilberforce, and I thought, now I've got to do the research. So you read other books and whatever. But the big question I had, because questions always have answers, you know, or they should, I thought, why don't more people know about this guy? If he's so great and he's so amazing, why don't people know about him? And I actually came up with the answer. And I said, if you do something so dramatic and so successful, here's an example. Um, now, there's not as many young people in this group because we know they're four hours from getting out of bed. But <laughs> if there were if young people, if you say to them, who invented the polio vaccine, okay? Jonas. A lot of people wouldn't know Jonas Salk invented that, right? But young people won't know that, and I'll go a step farther. Young people will say, what's polio? <clears throat> okay, that's the point. If you eradicate something so successfully, you wipe it off the face of the map. So today, we live in a world where slavery is so unthinkable that the man who really set the whole thing in motion, okay, we can think of Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass, whatever, he was the hero, Wilberforce, of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Everybody in the abolitionist movement looked to Wilberforce as the pioneer in the movement, and what he did was, using a biblical worldview, he wiped out the idea that slavery could ever be possible in a civilized society. And he so thoroughly undid that idea that we live in that world today, and we go, well, what, what do you mean he, 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 he did that or he abolished the slave trade? I don't even know. What's the slave trade? What's the difference between slave trade and slavery? He basically did something so monumental, but it goes beyond that. He also took the biblical idea that, I mean, it's all through Scripture that we're supposed to care for the poor. We're supposed to do all these things. In Great Britain and in all of the West... At this time, like this is the 18th century, so, you know, 1780 when he comes into Parliament, when he gets saved, the main view of people, if you're living in England or anywhere in Europe, 
you'd say, well, I'm a Christian, meaning I'm not a Muslim, I'm not an atheist, uh, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Christian, right? They, hadn't really, they weren't really living as Christians. It was a, it's still a pagan culture with a pagan worldview. So the poor were not really cared for. So in other words, imagine living in a world where everybody, maybe they go to church, they say, I'm a Christian because I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not, but they're not living it out. Wilberforce brought the biblical ideas about caring for the poor and, and all of this stuff into the mainstream, into politics. So by the time he died in 1833, it's right before the beginning of the Victorian era. What's the Victorian era known for? Morality, you know, rich people forming groups to help little, little groups of poor people and stuff. In other words, he drags this idea that we now totally take for granted. And the idea is so popular now that every atheist and agnostic says, oh, you gotta get back. Oh, you, of course you gotta take care about the poor. And it's kind of funny, because where'd that idea come from? It comes from the scriptures, and it was dragged into the mainstream of culture basically by William Wilberforce. So he did something so dramatic that, and of course the slave trade is the number one evil, right? In other words, if you're gonna bring the biblical worldview into culture, the first thing it goes is the slave trade and slavery. But what about everything else? What about caring for the poor? What about helping people uh, struggling with all kinds of addictions or this or that? He brings that idea into the center of Western European culture, and it's never left. And so now, as I say, you can go to a Swedish person who's an atheist, and you say, do you think we should care for the poor? And they say, what's the matter with you, obviously. But then, you know, you might say, okay, why? I, I don't know that they have an answer. They would just be offended that you'd ask them why, because it's so ingrained in us. We know why, because God commands us to do it, and because he has a different view of humanity, and everything. We're blessed to be a blessing, right? If you're rich today, you know God has blessed me so I can use what I have to bless others. I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking about I got to be a steward to use this for God's purposes. So everybody knows that. You can go to anybody in Hollywood and they say, I got to give back. I want to give back. But that whole idea of having a social conscience basically was not mainstream until Wilberforce and his friends kind of dragged it into the mainstream of British culture and, and it went through the, the whole society. So we can't even imagine that world, and so we don't think about Wilberforce. And that's why when I wrote this book, I thought this guy has done some stuff so dramatic that it's actually hard for us to believe it, and it's hard for us to believe that there was a time when people didn't think this way, uh, not, with re not just with regard to slavery, but with regard to, should I care about the poor? Should I care about my neighbor? Do I have an obligation? Uh, so it, it really is why I would say we don't know of him because it's kind of like say who invented oxygen or how like you just there are things we just don't think about and Eric the reason he did it isn't because he was following some social construct he had what he called a great change in his life right he had he had something monumental happen to him that gave him impetus right. to go in that direction yeah he was just not he was not like some awesome guy who was already going to do this anyway but then he did it a little better because he became a Christian no uh, he was um, he had a dramatic born-again experience when he was like 26 years old. And that's, I think, my favorite part of the book. If you read Amazing Grace, and by the way, I don't care if you read it, I just want you to purchase a copy. Um, I live in New York, okay? I gotta eat. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is that it is my favorite part of the book, and it's nowhere in the movie. I mean, the movie, look, the movie, I, you know, I, I basically like it, but it really leaves out the faith stuff. 
and it really leaves out all the other stuff that he did, because it's a movie, you can't cover too much, and the guy who directed it is not a believer, and he, he just kind of didn't want to, you know, so he tells the basics, but when you really get behind the scenes, which you could do in a book, you have the room, his conversion is so beautiful, I mean, I'm not even kidding you, yesterday I flipped to page 47 and read the paragraphs that I wrote, and I got tears in my eyes, because it's an amazing moment in history, and when this guy gets born again, he is so thoroughly intellectually honest that he knows I can't live the way I've been living. So he basically, he gets all his tattoos removed and he, that was a joke. Um, man, I'm testing you. I'm like, are you awake? You're here, but um, don't eat a big, like protein heavy breakfast before you come to the service because it'll just, you're digesting it now. Um, Basically, he was so thoroughly born again that he knew I, I probably can't even stay in politics anymore. What am I going to do with my life? I've been wasting my life. The Lord has delivered me, and, and what am I going to do with my life? So he goes to visit his old friend, John Newton. Now, you know John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace, and it's a whole backstory there. But he goes to visit him and says, what do I do now? I'm in politics. Politics is filthy. If you think politics is dirty today, you have no idea what it was like 200 years ago. It was just absolutely a filthy world. And John Newton says to him um, that basically God may have created you and put you where you are now for his purposes. Stay in politics. Use your gifts as an orator, as an ability to speak to these elite people for the Lord. So Wilberforce, being just a brilliant, thorough guy, he starts studying and reading books and praying. And two years later, it took almost two years, he writes in his diary 20 famous words. This is his faith. He's praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Which is a big, it's an interesting thing. He doesn't just say, hey, what's messed up and I'm going to do it. He was actually praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? So he writes in his diary in 1787, he says, the Lord Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade, so the thing that he's most famous for, okay, is to stand against this wicked slave trade. And when you read about that in the book, it's, it's horrifying. I mean, we, 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 again, we forget about it. Like, we don't realize, like, when you read about the slave trade, how the human beings were treated. It, it, it's worse than slavery itself. It's like a, an abomination, a demonic thing. He knew God called him to that, so that was number one. Number two... He writes, the reformation of manners, and he doesn't mean, you know, etiquette. He means morality, culture. He understood that he's living in a culture that it's not like, they, oh, they have slavery, but everything else is fine. If you have slavery, that's a hint that you're not living biblically. And it was everywhere. There was, uh, there was an epidemic of alcoholism you cannot even imagine. You just can't, we can't imagine it in this culture, that to, to have everyone, rich and poor, alcoholics. Uh, and it went on and on and on and on. And so he knew the Lord had called him to these things. So from that point forward, he sets himself to bring about bills in parliament to abolish the slave trade, but to do all these other things. So he's most famous for that one thing, but he did all these other things. And there is no doubt that it comes out of his faith. Don't let anybody tell you that, oh, this was inevitable, or this was a, this man heroically continued in a battle that if he did not know God called him to the battle, he would have given up because it was so discouraging. There's a chapter in here where I talk about how close he gets at one point 
he came within four votes and four people had been given tickets in parliament to some comic opera and they decided to go to the opera that night instead of going for the vote. That was as heartbreaking as anything he went through. And, but he knew the Lord called him to this battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so he continued and continued. So when he did finally succeed in 1807, he knew the Lord had done it. Um, but it was, it really was a kind of a battle that unless God has called you to the battle, you don't, you don't take these things lightly. So it's kind of a lesson to me and to all of us. You don't just do stuff. You just say, Lord, do you want me to do this? Are you calling me to do this? Or is the enemy luring me into this just to discourage me and, and make me feel like a failure? Is God calling us to something? So Wilberforce, when he gets saved, he knows I am saved for God's purposes. What are God's purposes? And he dedicates the rest of his life to it. And so that's, you know, almost 50 years where I would argue without any question, he changed the world. You hear people say stuff like that? He, he actually changed the world. It's not an exaggeration. Now, he would say... The Lord did it, which, of course, is true. He would say, well, it was me and all my friends and the Clapham group because he had all these prayer partners and colleagues that kind of banded together with it. But, but he led all that. He was the one that called all them to pray and to do all this different stuff. So the, the, the idea of a life given to God, it's just stunning. And I, and I think that a lot of people will say, well, well that's so impressive. Who am I? I'm, I'm a nobody. What am I going to do? You know, and it's like, no, exactly wrong you're supposed to look at the model of Wilberforce and say, if God can use one person to do that, what does he want me to do? And, and all I'm supposed to do is what God created me to do. And we let God worry about the results. But he gives us a figure in history like this just to show us God can do stuff. You'll never dream of what he can do through you if you're obedient and whatever. But it's definitely the centrality of Jesus in his life that made him do this, which is why I wanted to tell the story. Because I said, everybody agrees slavery is wrong. It's like, okay, how did it end? How did it end? It ended with Bible-thumping Jesus freaks, okay? Mm. <laughs> Not with secular people, as you'd have this idea today. I mean, how did the civil rights movement happen in America? That was in the churches? I mean, so we need to know the facts. The abolitionists in America, if you ever watch, um, Steven Spielberg made a movie called Amistad. Great movie. Uh, and it shows that it was the Bible-thumpers who were the abolitionists in America in 1840, 1830. Those are the ones leading the charge. Everybody who just went to church and, you know, didn't really take it too seriously, they were all in with slavery. They're like, what are you talking about? It's just part of life. It was the biblical worldview that changed that. And, and, and as Christians, we need to know that's a fact. You don't need to be a Christian, but the fact is, if you care about facts, that's history. Mm -hmm. That is the history of America. That's the history of civil rights. That's the history of you know, how we get to be where we are as a culture, all enlightened and stuff, it's because of the Bible. You don't need to like it, but that's just a fact, and we need to know that that's true. So good, so good. <laughs> Eric, this is a theme that runs through all of your books, that, that whether it's Luther or Bonhoeffer or Wilberforce, they have this worldview that propels them. But you said in this book that uh, Wilberforce performed the wedding between faith and culture. And um, that concept is huge, is that we can, through our lives, our, our, our trust in Christ, be impelled to make a difference. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that, as I was saying earlier, that in England in the 1780s, 1790s, it was a broken pagan culture. 
it was a culture that was nominally Christian, right? Um, we know a lot of people who are nominally Christian. There are cultures that are nominally Christian. I mean, if you go to Greece, okay, where my family is, it's an officially Greek Orthodox nation, okay? But most of the people are there. They just kind of, you know, they just go there for, uh, they go to church for weddings, funerals, and whatever, but they're not living it out. And Wilberforce was living in a culture in England where everybody says, you know, I'm Church of England. I'm English, I'm, I'm Church of England. Just like in Germany, you know, during the Hitler time, everybody says, oh, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Christian, sure. You know, like, they don't go deeper than that. Wilberforce had this born-again experience, and he, I mean, in those days, the serious Christians were called Methodists, or actually they were scorned as enthusiasts, you know, by the, like, holy rollers or whatever, Jesus freaks or, you know. He became one of them, and he saw that the whole culture was effectively pagan. And he said, well, we call ourselves a Christian nation. And he, in a way, challenged them over the decades to be officially a Christian nation, to abolish this abomination called the slave trade, eventually to abolish slavery itself, and to start caring for the poor and start doing this. So he brought faith into the culture, and there's just no doubt that today, as I said, everybody has a social conscience. I got I to gotta do something. I got to, you know, give back. I got to, well, that idea simply didn't exist before Wilberforce. So I, when I discovered that, and I did discover it, it's not like it was something I knew. In the writing of the book, I thought, this is just even more amazing than I thought. I mean, this man changed the world so dramatically that, again, we, we can't even imagine the West hmm. without these values and yet, it did exist without these values until the Lord used this guy to bring these values into the culture. And he had a wit and a sarcasm that you write about, at least early on. And his repartee was sharp uh, with people. I yeah. mean, you kind of have to be to be in that political environment. Yeah. But that, that got tempered. Oh, yeah. It, it, this is, to me, the most amazing thing. He was a guy known, before he had this born-again experience known as an orator, meaning that he could wipe the floor with his opponent. And you, you know how parliament is, right? I mean, they're just, they, they're just insulting each other, whatever. He was the best of the best, which is why he had so much power as a politician and so on and so forth. When he became born again, he knew he couldn't do that anymore. So he knew that even though he has the ability to wipe the floor with his opponent, God is not calling him to do that. God is calling him to fight and to win but to do it in a different way. And I actually make the case that it's because of that that he was able to win over people who are on the fence. Uh, he was able to be a true Christian leader at a time when England needed one badly. I, I said last night that we forget, uh, because we think history is like inevitable, the fact of the matter is that what happened in France, the French Revolution, which was a demonic bloodbath, okay, of like secular atheists. It was just a, a bloodbath. That was bubbling in such a way that it could have leapt across the channel into England. England had many of the same issues. But I really believe it's because of the Christian leadership of Wilberforce that England was able to continue without going to that place. Uh, so he really changed dramatically. You know, you know some people that are thoroughly converted. I mean, God humbled him in such a way that he, he really was going to be different about the way he lived. He knew that. And so it's, it, you know, that's another reason that it's important for us to know these stories because it inspires me when I, even as I hear myself saying it now, 
you know, to, to want to be careful what I say to my opponents or how I say it, you know, and uh, Wilberforce really, he really got that. Mm. Of all the things you do, radio, writing, television, is there a favorite genre you have? I know you're a little bit scattered, which is, I understand that, but is, what, what do you like to do most? Uh, Besides play Pokemon not, Go. Not answer questions like this, I'll tell you right now, man. Okay. Man, I hate this. No, uh, <laughs> the, um, I, I like, I, I really do like to do a lot of things. I've, I've done a good amount of comedy over the years. People don't know that side of me too much, but the Christmas special um, that we've been talking about gave me an opportunity to, to do some of that. I think it's important for us as Christians uh, to, to have fun and to have joy. Otherwise, people get a false religious view of the faith. There are a lot of people who think being Christian means being religious and being serious and, and, and stuff. And everybody has different temperaments. But I think if people don't see joy, they're going to say, well, I don't really want that, you know. And I don't mean fake joy, but I mean the joy of, of our faith, which is at the heart of it. If you understand what Jesus did for you, you're going to have to have joy and gratitude in, in your life. And I think that... There, there's something about being able to joke when I'm able to do that. You know, I can do that on my radio show during interviews uh, or at Socrates in the City or whatever. But I, but I think that those, th 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 there's, a, there's something there that I enjoy. But it, really, it is hard to say exactly what I like to do, but that's, uh, that's certainly at the top of the list. Okay, um, one final question, and that is, uh, what advice um, do you have for people Let's just take the people who are sitting here. Maybe they're teetering on, I could get into politics perhaps, or how, how could one life make a difference? I want to make positive changes in society. What do I do? Where do I start? Well, How I far mean, should I take it? Uh, yeah, I always say that, you know, you hear phrases like you can't outgive God, you know. Well, that's basically true. I mean, he created us to live for him. So you can't live for him too much. The question is, how, what are we supposed to do? And I think it's important for us to know that unless you have a personal relationship with him, uh, it's not enough to say I'm a Christian, I believe what the Bible says, but he wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to know him as a loving father, as a friend, that, 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 that he wants us to have that relationship. Why? Because then he can lead us and guide us in more subtle ways uh, in terms of what exactly he wants us to do. Because sometimes you can look at everything and say it's just overwhelming. Uh, it's fatiguing to see what a mess things are in. Some people are called to politics. Wilberforce was full-time politician. Some people are called to get involved in politics. Some people are not. Some people are called to get involved in full-time ministry. Some people are not. Some people are just called uh, to be a loving parent and spouse and that is more than enough. Uh, so we really need to have that personal relationship with the Lord and to just pray to him and say, Lord, lead me. Because otherwise you'll get overwhelmed. Wilberforce, in those 20 words that he wrote in his diary, he says, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. He didn't say, I have figured out that we need to change these things. He says, God Almighty has set before me. So we need to know that you know, there are certain scriptures that can kind of keep us straight. Like when, when the scripture says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto the Lord. Be anxious for nothing means be anxious for nothing, including your unsaved 
child or relative or neighbor. Be anxious for nothing. That is hardcore Christianity. When God says, I rebuke you, I love you, and I'm telling you, you bring your problems to me in prayer like we just heard in the song. That's what I'm telling you to do, not to fret. And I think a lot of times when you see how messed up things are, the tendency is to fret. Uh, the tendency is to say, oh, what difference can I make, whatever. That is of the devil. God called you to make a difference, and whatever difference he called you to make is infinite. It's eternal. We need to know that, otherwise we'll get overwhelmed. And, and the Lord has a spot for each of us. Um, but if you think, well, I want to do something great like Wilberforce, forget that. Just be obedient to God day by day, and he will lead us into what we're doing. I, I never thought... I'd be doing what I'm doing now. The Lord led me, and I praise him for it because he knows best, and his timing is best. Uh, so I th really think that having that relationship with him and just asking him, it doesn't mean, you know, I'm not going to try anything unless I hear from the Lord to do it. it. You know, the Lord leads us as we go sometimes, right? You can't steer a parked car. So you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this unto you. I'm going to try this, and, but, but steer me, Lord. What is your plan for me? And then I would also say that the Lord wants us to be all in, meaning the true joy of living is living for him totally. And that doesn't mean being a religious fanatic, but it means that everything you do, your whole life should be suffused with him. And that means that every penny you have, he gave it to you for his purposes, okay? And again, it's not supposed to make you some pinched person like, you know, David Brainerd, the missionary who's like, you know, eating a potato a day so he can save his pennies. So, I mean, sometimes this behavior can get religious, you know, you can get really re re pinched. But, but just understand that, hey, if the Lord has given you money or time or talent, guaranteed he's given it to you for his purposes uh, in this generation. And there's a lot that you can do. And that's why he, he has blessed us all. And to not, I don't say that as a burden, but to say that there's no real joy unless you're living that way. And when I read the stories of folks like Wilberforce, you, you, you kind of pick that up, uh, you know, uh, in, in an organic way. It, it becomes clear that that's, that is the life that the Lord called me to live, not just, you know, the minister or the guy up there with the microphone or whatever, but like that's, that's what it means to know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus is to live that way. And I think sometimes Christians get this idea that being a Christian is all about prayer uh, or it's all about what I believe theologically, but it has to translate into how I live and what I do. It's not enough just to say, I'm just going to pray, unless the Lord specifically calls you to be a prayer warrior, which some people he does. But um, I think uh, we often think, oh, it's just about what I believe theologically and now I'm a Christian. It's like, no, 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 no. It's got to now translate into my life and into how I live my life. And so part of the reason I write these stories is because these are the people who got that. They didn't pray less. They prayed more, but they did more too. So it's, uh, I, I forgot the question. What was yeah. the question? <clears throat> That's okay. You're like a preacher. You just keep going. Um, I, thank you, Eric, for, for writing so many good books, for investing in our lives. Thank you for coming out here. Uh, Eric is going to be available in the foyer afterwards to sign books. This is an excellent book. Um, I'm currently reading it and it's a page turner. It's also very informative and encouraging to us. So, Eric, thank you for being here. Anything else you'd like to say? I just, I, I really mean this, that all the books that I write and everything I do um, on the radio and on YouTube and all this stuff, I do it 
as a resource, you know, for the, for the church. Uh, I wrote a book about miracles. I wrote a book about America called If You Can Keep It. I, I just want you to know that I write these things to help us live out our faith and to help us share our faith. Most of my books are books you can give to non-believers. Um, I really do think that that's something that it, we're living in such a secular culture that we we need that. So if you just look me up online or whatever, there's just a lot of resources, you know, videos and, 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 and stuff that, that I, I put it out there as a resource. And so I just want to encourage you to check it out. Uh, I'm not, you know, getting rich off of it. The whole point is just to put it out there so you can share it uh, with, you know, believers and non-believers. Um, because I think some, some of it will bless you. And on my radio program, I'll tell you, the guests will bless you. I've had people on the radio program that are it's on YouTube there's such a blessing to me, and I'm just thinking, I hope people, you know, see this and, like, read that guy's book or this woman's book because there's so many wonderful people out there. And, you know, you're not going to see them on CNN or Fox. Uh, you're just never going to hear about them. And that's part of uh, how God uses me, and so I just want to say that to you. Avail yourself. Well, we're glad. Thank you so much, Eric, and thank you for coming to church at 8 o'clock in the morning. Let's all stand. We're going to close in a song of worship. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.